Oh, thank you so very much. I told Brad before this service started that I'm just, I'm saddened that it's all quickly coming to an end. Uh, honestly, I, I was so excited to get here that my challenge on the way up 71 was maintaining the speed limit. And I did not do that flawlessly um, because I wanted to be here uh, with you. What a privilege. What a joy. Uh, I love, I love singing with you. I love adding my sorry voice to your beautiful voices. And I love listening to you sing. You sing with theologically informed affections, gospel-informed passion. So at times I will sing, and then at other times I just listen and feel the pleasure of God. So, what a joy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for your attentiveness and responsiveness to God's Word as well. Uh, who wouldn't want to be here? Who wouldn't want to preach here? And I am a huge fan of your lead pastor, um, and anybody in Sovereign Grace will tell you that, that when I'm talking about people outside of Sovereign Grace who I respect, um, your pastor is on my short list, and, and here's why. So this is from my experience over now some 45 years in pastoral ministry. I, I, think, I think Brad is a rare combination. A rare, there's, there's like a number of evidences of grace. So there is humility that I perceive in his life. There is compassion. There is theological discernment. Um, there is courage. And all too often, that's a rarity among pastors. There is a pronounced gift of leadership that I'm sure is obvious to you. And then he has this way of just adopting people and giving the gift of his friendship. And it's very meaningful to me that he has given me the gift of his friendship. That is a kindness, and I'm grateful. So, thank you, my friend, and thank you. Please turn in your Bible to the first letter of Peter, chapter 5, and I am very grateful that your lead pastor kindly gives me permission to deviate from the norm and preach a different sermon in each service because that's how I roll. I deeply respect that he preaches the same sermon three times. I don't know how he does that. I'm sure it's the grace of God in his life, but um, thank you for making an exception for me in this case. First Peter chapter 5, the title of this message is simply, Because... He cares for you. And in just a moment, I have the distinct privilege of reading aloud to you the very words of God himself. And I just want to alert us and prepare us so that we never grow overly familiar with God's word. Because in a moment, as I read these words... God himself is kindly addressing us. So, let's listen up, filled with anticipation as he does address us from his word. 1 Peter chapter 5, I begin reading in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but 
gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Well-known and much-loved author John Piper makes the following observation about humility. Humility, he writes, is not a popular human trait in the modern world. It's not touted in the talk shows or celebrated in valedictorian speeches or commended in diversity seminars or listed with core values. And if you go to the massive self-help section of Barnes & Noble, you won't find books on humility. The basic reason for this is not hard to find. Humility can only survive in the presence of God. When God goes, humility goes. In fact, you might say that humility follows God like a shadow. We can expect to find humility applauded in our society as often as we find God applauded, which means almost never. Well, in our passage this morning, Peter breaks out into applause for humility, and he encourages the original readers to applaud with him and to apply humility both to their personal lives and in the context of the local church community. And as we consider this passage, we are going to discover that it is the character of God, His mighty hand, His personal care that informs and inspires both the creation and the cultivation of humility. These three verses, like really all of Scripture, they, they are god centered, and they direct our gaze Godward. Humility is the shadow that follows God in these verses. So let's listen carefully this morning as Peter skillfully pastors the heart of the original readers, identifying for them the root of their anxiety and providing the antidote to their anxiety in the midst of persecution and suffering that is provoking their anxiety. And as we listen, here's what I pray. I pray that each of us becomes aware this morning that the chief shepherd himself is present and caring for each of us through this passage, addressing our anxieties that have been our com frequent companion this past week and perhaps, oh, perhaps even accompanied us to this gathering this morning. And most important, oh my, most important, when this sermon concludes, may we humbly direct our applause to the Lord himself. For these verses remind us, he alone is worthy. Peter begins with an exhortation to those who are younger. 
Now this immediately follows his addressing the elders of the church in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. The opening word likewise, it actually continues the theme of the appropriate subjection of Christians that actually began all the way back in chapter 2, verse 13, with Peter exhorting the church to be subject to civil authorities. And so if it's possible for the Christian to resist and rebel against the civil authorities, the same temptation exists in relation to the authority of the elders. So Peter identifies here a common temptation among the younger in age and perhaps younger men in particular. In his commentary, Peter Davids describes this temptation when he writes, the temptation of the younger is impatience with the elders not perceiving the wisdom of the elders. And tell me this isn't relevant in our culture where youth is celebrated and valued and those older, uh, they're not respected. They're not appreciated for the wisdom that they can provide. However, it shouldn't be difficult for the original readers to support and submit to the elders as described in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, for these men are going to one day receive the unfading crown of glory from the chief shepherd himself for the way they have served God's people, and so they are deserving of the support and followership of all, particularly the younger particularly the less mature. So, those among us this morning who are younger, let me ask you a question. Are you aware of this particular temptation in this season of your lives? Are you, are you young man or woman, are you alert to a culture that would dismiss the authority and wisdom of the elders and dismiss this command, and instead, a culture that would encourage you this morning, question authority. Are you aware of that? Are you aware of the temptation not be subject to the appropriate authority? Are you, young man or woman, are you alert to the temptation within your soul to be wise in your own eyes? You aware of that temptation? What does this mean? What does it mean to be subject to the elders? I mean, what, what might this look like? Well, just consider a few illustrations of what this might look like for you to apply this verse and experience, experience the grace and the wisdom that is present in this verse. Do you, do you respect your pastors and speak appreciative, appreciatively of them in public? Do you? Or are you, are you prone to criticize your pastors? Prone to criticize them because you're wise in your own eyes. Prone to criticize because you want to appear cool. Cool to your friends. You want their approval. And the way to get that is to criticize your pastors. So if I asked your friends, if I asked your friends if they thought you were subject to your pastors, if I asked your friends if they thought you appreciated your pastors, what would your friends say? If you find yourself, young man or woman, in a context where someone confidently states, pastors, pastors of this church, and you fill in the blank, some criticism, frauds, some deficiency. Let me ask you something. Do you remain silent? 
Or do you call them out? Do you challenge them? Do you courageously say, not mine, pal. Not mine. Not the pastors. Not the elders of Grace Church. Another question for you to consider from an old guy who cares about your soul. When you are with a pastor, do you talk more than you listen? Are you more apt to state your opinion or ask for their counsel, ask for their perspective? Another one. When was the last time you appropriately thanked a pastor for serving you in a specific way? Now, maybe one more. Do you consistently pray for your pastors? Does your life, as you contemplate this verse and apply it, does, does your life display, listen, the humbling effect of the gospel in genuine, appropriate, biblically informed subjection to your pastors? If not, young man, young woman, may you give attention to your soul in relation to this command and in obedience to this command, cultivate the appropriate respect and appreciation for your pastors because you know why? They are a gift from the chief shepherd himself to you. They care for you and about you and they're laying down their lives for you and you should be grateful. And from all I hear and all I experience, you are. And by the way, if you're a teenager, here's, here's what I'm jealous for in your life. I don't want you to look back on your teen years with regret. You don't have to. If you smarten up and obey the wisdom of God's word, you actually can serve this church in your teenage years and look back on your teenage years without regret, knowing, here's what you can know, you please God. You please God and you grew in wisdom. You weren't a dope, okay? <laughs> That's what I'm trying to protect you because I was a dope and I regret it to this day. And this verse is a gift to you, young man or woman, filled with grace and wisdom, countercultural in every way for your good, for the good of this church and for the glory of God. Actually, one more thing. You can, young man, you can apply all of this to your relationship with your parents as well. Why don't you go ahead and do that? So when you take this quiz later on, why don't you apply it to your parents as well? Then Peter turns his attention to the entire church. Verse 5b, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Now listen, in order to feel the force of this command, I have to, I have to remind you, humility was not admired. Humility was not admired in the Greco-Roman world of the original readers, but instead, humility, listen, humility was thought of as demeaning. Humility was servile. And you know what? It appears little has changed. But regardless of one's age, humility is to be a distinctive of the church. It's to be a mark of the church, a distinctive of the church. So the original readers, having become exile and strangers in the Greco-Roman world through the transforming effect of the gospel, they are to clothe themselves with humility. And this, this probably reflects Peter's recollection of the scene in John 13 where we read now before the feast 
of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And since we weren't present, New Testament scholar Don Carson helps us to understand the significance of this when he insightfully writes, with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected Jesus to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of the betrayer. His act of humility is as unnecessary as it is stunning and is simultaneously a display of his love, a symbol of his saving cleansing, and a model of Christian conduct. And brothers and sisters, I think we can assume that Peter would never forget that moment, that act, that towel, that humility displayed by the Son of God. He would never forget it because it was Peter who ignorantly and arrogantly protested and said, you shall never wash my feet. In 1 Peter 5, we are encountering a humbled Peter who now comprehends the significance of that moment and the Lord's example and who now exhorts the original readers and us by implication to follow that example. So, clothe yourselves with humility Serve one another. You know, this is how we're supposed to dress. We actually, in church, are all to dress alike. Humility is always in style. Humility never goes out of style. So if you were concerned about whether you were dressed stylishly or not this morning, if you want to dress stylishly each and every Sunday, here's how to dress stylishly. Clothe yourself with humility. There's all kinds of stylishly dressed people in this church. You know why? You know how I know? Everywhere I look, people are serving. From the moment I got out of my car, everywhere I look. And people are not only serving everywhere I look here. It's like dizzying how much serving is going on. But they're doing it happily. I mean, if you thank them, then, you know, then they might argue with you about what a privilege it is um, and what a joy it is. Uh, an argument breaks out over commending someone for serving. What a, what, a wonderful, what a wonderful experience. No, my privilege. Everywhere I look here, people are dressed stylishly because they have on a garment 
It's not difficult to recognize. It's a heart to serve. It's a heart to serve others. Listen, it's a heart to serve others in the mundane. Nothing dramatic about it. Oh, goodness. Feel God's pleasure. This church must feel God's pleasure. People are just serving everywhere here. While we're in here, there's an army of people serving the children with the gospel. And they're doing it joyfully. Listen, if you really understand stylish dress, and you will see wherever you look here, people are just serving. Three services. It's like a turnover every time. I just meet a whole new group of people who show up to do everything else the previous group did and to do it just as happily as the previous. It's just, it's wonderful. It's just dizzying. To be here is to feel God's pleasure and to observe people who have clearly been humbled by the gospel. So what do they want to do? They don't want to promote themselves. They want to please him, glorify him. So they serve. They get dressed. They clothe themselves with humility. That's how they dress. That's how they roll. And by the way, this is particularly important when persecution of the church has potential to separate members of the church. So Peter is a very wise pastor here. The original readers are being persecuted. There are pressures they didn't anticipate. He is aware of that. And he is trying to protect them by exhorting them to clothe themselves with humility because if they clothe themselves with humility, they'll not only survive this persecution, they'll thrive. They will thrive in the midst of persecution. And what a compelling example. Oh my, my. What a compelling example of the effect of the gospel this would be to a hostile culture. And it's just as relevant today. Our culture hostile to the gospel. They don't have a category for humility. Listen, folks, if you're a guest, this isn't a church made up of self-righteous people who arrive here convinced they're morally superior. No, no. It is a church made up of people who've been humbled by the gospel. They think of themselves as the worst sinner they know because they're more familiar with their sin than anyone else's. And they are here to celebrate that gospel and its transforming effect and to clothe themselves with humility by serving others and considering it an absolute privilege to do so because their Savior served them not only by washing the feet of his disciples but rising and making his way to a hill called Calvary. he would clothe himself, where he would humble himself in order to save arrogant sinners like you and me. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing grace. And by the way, Peter points out, here's why it's a wise move to clothe oneself with humility. Verse 5c, 
For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's why it's a wise move to clothe oneself with humility. So Peter actually transitions from humility in relation to each other to humility in relation to God, from which all humility in relation to each other originates and proceeds. So all humility in relation to each other that's genuine is rooted in one's humility before God himself. Clothe yourself, Peter said. Clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud. Let's ponder this and apply it for a moment. It's given for our good. God isn't indifferent toward the proud of heart. God isn't indifferent toward those who have a stubborn pattern of pride in their lives. No, no, he's not indifferent. He's not remote. No, he informs us here, oh no, I'm actively opposed. I'm actively opposed. Now listen, please don't misunderstand. This is a warning from Scripture. I'm not going to weaken it or soften it. It wouldn't serve you. It's not an option anyway, but like all warnings in Scripture, it's an expression of the mercy of God. All warnings in Scripture are expressions of the mercy of God, meant to protect us. So God is protecting us from the perils and the pitfalls of pride in this verse. An arrogant disposition of heart, listen, provokes the opposition of God himself. Let me be real clear here. There is nothing imaginable that could be worse than being opposed by God himself. Nothing. Nothing. So, to those who are self-sufficient, to those who are self-reliant, to those who are self-exalting, to those who have a very high opinion of themselves, God announces himself in this passage as actively present tense opposed to them. It just doesn't get more serious. It, do, it doesn't. doesn't get more serious, doesn't get more sobering, doesn't get more frightening. And, and this sobering warning is then immediately followed by the sweetest of promises. Oh, man, don't you love God's word? God opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. Oh my. Let me just encourage all of us. Run to this part of the verse. Run right now. Run. Run with all your heart and mind. <laughs> Soul strength. Run to this part of the verse. God gives grace to the humble. Those who are aware of their sin, those who are aware of their need for grace, those who are dependent on him, those who cry out to him, to those, what does he do? Oh, not only does he not oppose them, he gives them grace. He gives them unmerited favor. He gives them unmerited favor they do not deserve and cannot earn. So, since God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, what should Christians do? Verse 6, Christians, therefore, should humble themselves. Following, the, it's just so clear, he's just such a good pastor. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, in their context, in their immediate circumstance, that, that would mean accepting those circumstances. And for them, that means being the object of persecution. Their 
trials in the form of persecution have brought them low. And those trials and behind those trials is a sovereign and wise God who is at work for their good. So they were to acknowledge and accept this painful, fiery trial of persecution. Chapter 4, verse 12, they were experiencing it was governed. So this fiery trial was governed by the mighty hand of God. Behind that fiery trial was the mighty hand of God. And in chapter 4, Peter informs them it's for the purpose of the purification of their soul. So this was to be a massive assurance to them that the persecution they were presently experiencing, it's passed through his mighty hand. So it comes to them with his permission and his approval for his good purpose. And so Peter wants them to perceive God's mighty hand over their persecution and in their persecution so that their souls will be fortified and protected from sinful retaliation against their enemies in particular. So he's calling on them here. Bow in your hearts before the sovereignty of God. And by the way, this reference to the mighty hand of God, it, it would be very meaningful to the original readers in the midst of their experience of persecution because it would remind them of the historic deliverance of the children of Israel from the oppression of the Egyptians. So that phrase, mighty hand of God, Peter is drawing from Exodus. He's drawing from the Exodus. He was assuring them that just as the Lord delivered his people from Egypt, so he would deliver and vindicate them. He will exalt you as you humble yourselves. He will exalt you. So their humble submission to God was but a prelude to their exaltation by God. So they got this mighty, unseen hand of God governing their suffering for the purpose of refining their hearts. And that, Peter's assuring them, you know what? That same hand that's governing your suffering, that same hand is going to exalt you at the proper time. Because the purpose of God is never just to humble. It's never just to bring low. It's ultimately to exalt with and because of Christ. And this God will most definitely do, did you see that little phrase? At the proper time. <laughs> At the proper time. Edmund Hybert in his commentary reminds us that part of humility is willingness to patiently wait for things according to God's timetable. Did you hear that? Part of humility is willingness to patiently wait for things according to God's timetable. Sinclair Ferguson writes, God has his own calendar. <laughs> My calendar's different than God's. I just, I want everything and I'd like it today. Um, there's all this exaltation stuff. Sometime this afternoon, this evening, that's fine. And, and I can work with the time frame of this week. And if necessary, okay, I'll wait a month. That, that's my understanding of proper time. 
Oh, my. Listen, the number of times the word wait is in Scripture, it's a hint. I don't wait well. I don't, don't do it well at all. Did, I did not hone my waiting skills growing up. I don't believe in lines. I, I just don't. I don't believe I don't believe in standing in line. So I'm that guy, like if I'm approaching in, in whatever store, if I happen to find myself in a store, I try to stay away from stores as much as possible, but if I'm that, I'm that guy, you know, there, there's six options. I'm the guy, I don't, I don't, just, I don't just have my whatever I'm buying and, and move thoughtlessly. No, I'm, I'm checking out lines. I'm looking to see, how many items does everybody have? What's, what's this looking like? Is this moving? And, and I get really self-righteous when I'm in a line. It says, you know, 15 items or less, and I'm, I'm counting. Buddy, buddy, that's 19 items in yours. So we need to call the manager and then law enforcement um, because you're, you're not supposed to be in this line. And by the way, that item that you've gotten four times, that doesn't count as one. So that, that's a little bit of insight into my self-righteousness. But that's, that's what I do. I'm looking at whoever's doing the checking out. I, I, I want somebody polite, but not too friendly. Because <laughs> I don't want to get in the line of someone who's looking to develop a new friendship with everybody that's going through. I just, I've been in those lines. I, I've, I've skillfully positioned myself to be third in line. Next to me is a line with six or seven. And I'm so happy that I'm in that line. But my line's not moving, and actually in the next line, half the store is emptying out because the individual serving in my line is drawing out the history of every customer. <laughs> so when God says, CJ, your responsibility and dependence on my grace is to humble yourself. I'll get back to you about the exalting part. It'll be in my wise, proper time. And I'm not going to tell you when that is. You just clothe yourself with humility. Because part of humility, whew, this is a hard part of humility, is willingness to patiently wait for things according to God's timetable. Knowing he's never late Never late. Never early either. It's always the proper time. So on the last day, and this is certainly in view here to some degree, they're going to be vindicated by God. Their enemies are going to be judged. On the last day, there's going to be a reversal of fortunes. They're going to receive the inheritance which is being kept in heaven for them. By the way, I'm sure you're a well-taught church. The Bible does not teach your best life now. That is nonsense. It cannot be found in this book. Now, the Bible prepares the church for suffering. It prepares the church for suffering and persecution now and then inspires the church with a vision of glory when? In the life to come. That's the vision this book will inspire an awareness and an assurance that the promised exaltation will inspire you then to humbly submit to God's hand even in the midst of trial. So they're suffering. It has an end date. 
but God doesn't indicate when. At the proper time, he will vindicate them. At the proper time, he will exalt them. And the assurance of the future, it was just meant to make all the difference in their souls presently. Not long ago, I saw an ad for an insurance company that read, today is better when you've taken care of tomorrow. I'll tell you what Peter's doing. Peter is assuring the original readers that today is better because God has taken care not of tomorrow. No, God has not only taken care of tomorrow. Today, today is better because God has taken care of eternity future. That's why today is better for the Christian regardless of what one is experiencing in the present. Now, I also love the fact that Peter doesn't simply exhort them to humble themselves, but he also makes plain how to humble themselves. So he not only instructs them in what to do, he also explains how to do it. That's good pastoring. Don't just, don't just tell us what to do. Tell us how to do it. So he does verse 7. So listen, verse 7. Put your eyes, fasten your eyes on verse 7 because this is the secret sauce for cultivating humility. Verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's the secret sauce. That's how to humble yourself. It's how to clothe yourself with humility. We humble ourselves before God by casting all our anxieties upon God. That's how we humble ourselves before God. So Christians humble themselves before God by casting all their anxieties on God. That's how a Christian humbles himself before God. So, listen, casting cares is an expression of humility. Casting cares is an expression of humility. Listen, let me add one more point. When I fail to cast my cares, it's an evidence of pride. It's an evidence of pride in my life because those who humble themselves cast their anxieties and those who are proud don't. And you know what the result is? They always worry. Let me ask you a question. Have you, have you ever considered that your anxiety, your tendency to worry, have you ever considered it's an expression of your pride? We, we are normally sympathetic with those who inform us about their anxieties, are we not? And we're certainly always sympathetic with ourselves <laughs> when we worry. But Scripture actually confronts us with a very serious reality we might not have considered for the purpose, listen, for the purpose of liberating us from the crippling effects of worry in our lives. His excellent book, Running Scared, Ed Welsh insightfully writes, worry is a stealth sin. It doesn't feel like sin, but it actually is a subtle and serious sin because, because why? Well, because it's an expression of my pride. Okay, now, so how is this possible? Help me, CJ. How is it possible, how is it possible for worry to be a form of pride? Well, I'm going to let Dr. Tom Schreiner tell you from his fine commentary. He writes, worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust in is themselves. When believers throw their worries upon God. I love that phrase. They express their trust in His 
mighty hand, acknowledging that he is Lord and sovereign over all of life. Oh, I find that so helpful. So when I worry, and I'm tempted to worry each and every day, what's going on? I've ceased to trust God. When I'm worrying, you know the only God I'm trusting in? Myself. That's the God I'm trusting in. Yes, my worry is an expression of my pride. But listen, here's the good news. Oh, man, is this good news. Those who humble themselves cast their anxieties on God. Those who humble themselves throw, throw their worries upon God. So this, this casting thing, this, this throwing thing, it's very specific. It's a very specific, decisive act on our part. It's just a, it's a definite, decisive act done in obedience to Scripture through prayer. It, it means to cast. It means to hurl. It means to throw. It means to hand over to. It means to place upon. It is a decisive, energetic act informed by the grace of God. It's intentional. It's an intentional transfer of your anxiety from your soul to God himself. The God with that mighty hand. So you can cast your anxiety confidently on him and it's an act of humbling yourself before him. So, we are to cast or hurl or throw our anxieties upon him. Listen, this will, change, this, will, this will change your life. We're to cast our anxieties on him, not carry them ourselves. Now look, let's just be real, straight up here. We've all got them. Everybody here, if I spent time with anybody in this room and asked you after this meeting, Catalog your anxieties. You've got them. Yours are probably whatever you're thinking about when I'm making this point. But we've all got them. The, the only unanswered question this morning is, what are you going to do with yours? That's the only unanswered question. You got them. I got them. What are you going to do with them? You're going to humble yourself and hurl it? Or are you going to carry it to the car? And into the week. So each day, each and every day, every one of us, listen, you're either doing one or the other. You're either casting cares or you're accumulating cares. Those are your options. Those are your options. Worry is carrying burdens that you and I were never intended to carry. And it, listen, if you're going to clothe yourself with humility, then you're going to have to learn how to cast your cares on the Lord. Listen, because otherwise, you will be preoccupied with yourself and your anxieties, and you will be distracted from serving others. The people who serve others are people who clothe themselves with humility. Therefore, they've humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God. How have they done that? They've cast their anxieties on him. What's that done? It's liberated them to see others and to serve others. That's the liberating effect it has. And if you don't cast cares, well, then it just, life is all about you. You and your world and your cares. Again, to quote from Ed Welsh, he writes, Worry, listen, puts the focus on me. 
Worry allows me to indulge in self-pity. Folks, this will provoke you. Rather than sympathizing with yourself, when you worry, you know what? It's, it's just all about you. Th- those who are chronic worriers, they often don't consistently serve others because they aren't clothed with humility, but instead what? They're preoccupied with themselves. So I just find this so helpful and liberating. I hope you do as well. Humbling ourselves before God is, listen, simple. I didn't say it was easy. I said it was simple. There's a difference. It's simple, meaning it's not complicated. Meaning someone like myself, of average intelligence and without formal education, I can get this. I can read this. And I, and I, don't, I don't need to know the original language, although I would encourage all pastors to avail themselves of all formal training, but I'm, I, I love the simplicity and clarity of God's word. Humility is expressed and cultivated by specifically casting our anxieties on the mighty and trustworthy God. Humility says, Lord, I trust you more than I trust my present circumstances, more than I trust my imagination as I think about my future. Listen, a recommendation, not only don't listen to your worries. Don't argue with your anxiety. You won't win an argument with your anxiety. Anxiety is a bully. Anxiety is a bully, and that bully wants to beat you up. Well, what do I do? Cast it! Hurl it! Throw it! Get rid of it! Give it to the mighty hand of the sovereign, wise, and good God. Give it to him. Leave it with him. Experience the liberating effect of his grace when one humbles oneself. So, listen, why don't we get, let's get started. Like, why wait? Why, like, why postpone this? All difficulty a Christian experiences who lives a godly life in a fallen world, it's all addressed here. Did you see it? All your anxieties. Verse 7. See it? All. All means all. All. All your anxieties. So the original readers, they were experiencing persecution, and that understandably stimulated the temptation to anxiety. So let me just ask you this. What's tempting you to anxiety? What's tempting you? Like, what are your anxieties? What are your anxieties for yourself? If you're a parent, what are your anxieties for your children? If you're a grandparent, what are your anxieties for your grandchildren? I have good news for you. Right now, right now, here's what you can do. You can humble yourself. And you can cast not some of them, not a few of them, not a select number of them. You can cast them all. You can cast all of them, all of them, all of them. And listen, Peter informs them of the reason why they should have no hesitation to cast all their anxieties. The reason why they should have no reluctance to cast all their anxieties in verse 7. Here's the reason why. Hurl them, throw them, cast them, because... He cares for you. Oh, my, my. How good is that? God is not indifferent 
to the original readers in their suffering. God is aware of their suffering and he deeply cares about them in their suffering. Listen, their cares are his concern. Each of them, each and every one of them, all of them are his concern. I, I, I don't know of sweeter words in all of Scripture than these words assuring the Christian that God himself cares. My Christian brother or sister, your cares that you brought with you this morning, your cares, not some of them, all of them, are his concern. And you can cast all of them. Why? Well, because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. I mean, I just, this is just a difference maker. Difference maker in the heart and the life of the Christian. Listen, do you, I hope you're following this. This isn't a formula. Okay, casting cares isn't a, isn't a formula. No, no. It is an act that is informed and inspired by one's trust in a God who cares. That's what's informing this. So this isn't a formula. This is about knowledge of God informing obedience to God. The Christian is convinced or must be convinced that God cares. That God cares deeply and profoundly and personally about him or her. And Peter is a skillful pastor who knows that when one is suffering, listen, Peter knows something. He knows that in particular, when one is suffering, one is vulnerable to doubting whether God does indeed care for you. Suffering is a temptation to doubt the care of God. And by the way, when you suffer, Satan is quite quick to call into question and sow into our minds suspicion about whether God cares. You think he cares about you? Like if he cared about you, like if he really did, would this be happening to you? I mean, your friends aren't suffering in this way. Like what does that say about you? about God, uh, Satan, sows suspicion, particularly in the midst of suffering. Peter knows this. He's very familiar with being sifted. He's a wise pastor coming alongside these individuals, and he is assuring them of God's care for them. So, question, no doubt one you've thought of. How can they be sure God cares? Like, how can they be sure God cares? Perhaps even a more important question for you and I is, how can we be sure? Like, how can we be sure? How can we be sure God cares? Oh, here's how you can be sure. Listen, don't take your eye off that mighty hand. Don't take your eye off that mighty hand. Because any reference in Scripture to the mighty hand of God, any tracing of God's mighty hand would be incomplete if it didn't conclude a reference to the hand of God in relation to what took place on a hill called Calvary. The mighty hand of God revealed in Exodus prefigures 
the mighty hand of God at Calvary. So how can you be certain he cares for you? You can be certain he cares for you. Listen, because the same mighty hand that delivered the Israelites is the hand, listen, is the hand that did not spare his own son, but gave him up on the cross for sinners like you and me. Oh, Sinclair Ferguson eloquently writes of this extraordinary expression of God's hand and care with these words. He handed over, he handed over his own son to bear the condemnation due to sinners. Here is the heart of the plan of God and the wonder of the gospel. The best of all men dies as though he was the worst of all criminals. Behind the handing over of the Lord Jesus by Judas Iscariot, by Herod, by the priests, by Pontius Pilate, stood the purposes of his heavenly Father, handing him over to the cross in order to die in the place of sinners. He bore God's judgment and wrath against our sin. What inexpressible love this is. God can point us to the cross and say, do, do you see how much I love you? How can I be sure he cares? God is making eye contact with each of us this morning and saying, Behold, a hill called Calvary, where my holy, innocent son suffered. I, I crushed him. I crushed him under the weight of my justice and wrath against your sin. In your place, condemned, he stood. Why? Because I care for you. That's why. So you can be certain of God. Listen, not minimizing any painful suffering and circumstances here in any way. But I will say, that God's kindness is evident in this passage and throughout Scripture by turning our attention away from the difficulties of our trials and drawing our attention to a hill called Calvary so that we will not try to derive a perception of His care for us from our circumstances, be they prosperous or adverse. But instead, just do what Spurgeon said. Abide hard, he said, by the cross. And search the mystery of his wounds. Because as you do, you become convinced of his care for you. Because what do, we, what, do we, what do we perceive at the cross? Oh my, the mighty hand is a merciful hand. The mighty hand is a merciful hand. And that mighty and merciful hand frees us from worry and fear. So this passage is meant to make a discernible difference 
in our lives, in this wonderful local church. So, brothers and sisters, humble yourself right now. Humble yourself under the mighty and merciful hand of God. Here's how. Cast all your anxieties. If you haven't done it already, get going right now. Do it through the song, all of them. Don't take one of them back to the car with you. Cast them all on him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's why. And he demonstrated that on a hill called Calvary. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your care for us, which is just so evident. The wisdom of your word, how it addresses our hearts, all of our lives. Just you are present through your word, putting your arms around everybody in this auditorium. Lord, the diversity of experience and age, and it's just... It's just, in in many ways, all irrelevant because your word addresses what matters in our hearts and directs the attention of our hearts away from our circumstances and temptations and instead fixes our gaze on the mighty and merciful hand of God with this sweet invitation to humble ourselves by casting all our anxieties. So I pray right now we would do that. I pray we'd all repent of pride where we have been worrying and instead get busy humbling ourselves because you give grace to the humble so that we would leave here liberated, happy people, not because all our circumstances have changed, nope, but because they've all been cast on the mighty and merciful hand of God who in his proper time will exalt us. In Jesus' name, amen.